If the mystery has wrapped up so nicely, why does Poirot still feel like something is not right? Agatha Christie, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales podcast is listener-supported. If you enjoy listening to the Classic Tales, please become a supporting member. It helps to support the podcast, and it's a great way to build out your library of classics. By making a monthly donation of just $5, you'll receive a corresponding thank you code for an $8 discount off any audiobook order. Donate $10 a month or more, and you'll get a $17 discount. You win, and we get to keep going strong. Go now to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a member today. We'd like to thank Spotify for being a partnering sponsor. App users can find more meditations of Marcus Aurelius in their special features for this week's episode. I'm working on an initiative to make the Classic Tales audiobooks free for public schools. Thank you for everyone who has visited the website, purchased audiobooks, or recommended or reviewed us. Every little bit goes a long way. Anything you can do to help us grow and sustain ourselves will help us put the classics into the ears of the next generation. Thank you so much. Now for our personal moment. We had a wonderful Christmas celebration. It was great to see our families and have our holiday meals. On the Harrison side, we have charcuterie and gumbo, and on Silla's side of the family, we had our holiday ham dinner. And it's also now time to make goals. We make goals every three months. And we get together as a family and talk about them from time to time and just kind of see how we're going. And it's, uh, it's worked out really well. The most important thing that we're learning is how important it is to fail and to learn to be okay with failure and when things don't work out. It's been great. That's our personal moment. And now, The Murder on the Links, Part 7 of 7, by Agatha Christie. Chapter 25, An Unexpected Denouement We were present the following morning at the examination of Jack Rennell. Short as the time had been, I was shocked at the change that had taken place in the young prisoner. His cheeks had fallen in. There were deep black circles round his eyes, and he looked haggard and distraught, as one who had wooed sleep in vain for several nights. He betrayed no emotion at seeing us. The prisoner and his counsel, Maître Grosier, were accommodated with chairs. A formidable guard with resplendent sabre stood before the door. The patient greffier sat at his desk. The examination began. Renaud, began the magistrate. Do you deny that you were in Merlonville on the night of the crime? Jack did not reply at once. Then he said with a hesitancy of manner, which was piteous, I... I told you that I was in Cherbourg. Maître Grosier frowned and sighed. I realized at once that Jack Renault was obstinately bent on conducting his own case as he wished, to the despair of his legal representative. The magistrate turned sharply. Send in the station witnesses. 
In a moment or two, the door opened to admit a man whom I recognized as being a porter at Merlonville Station. You were on duty on the night of June 7th? Yes, monsieur. You witnessed the arrival of the 11.40 train? Yes, monsieur. Look at the prisoner. Do you recognize him as having been one of the passengers to alight? Yes, monsieur le juge. There is no possibility of your being mistaken. No, monsieur. I know monsieur Jacques Renault well. Nor of your being mistaken as to the date. No, monsieur, because it was the following morning, June 8th, that we heard of the murder. Another railway official was brought in and confirmed the first one's evidence. The magistrate looked at Jacques Renault. These men have identified you positively. What have you to say? Jack shrugged his shoulders. Nothing. Monsieur Rotet exchanged a glance with the greffier, as the scratching of the latter's pen recorded the answer. Renaud, continued the magistrate, do you recognize this? He took something from the table by his side and held it out to the prisoner. I shuddered as I recognized the aeroplane dagger. Pardon, cried Maître Grosier. I demand to speak to my client before he answers that question. But Jacques Renault had no consideration for the feelings of the wretched Grosier. He waved him aside and replied quietly, Certainly I recognize it. It is a present given by me to my mother as a souvenir of the war. Is there, as far as you know, any duplicate of that dagger in existence? Again Maître Grosier burst out, and again Jack overrode him. Not that I know of. The setting was my own design. Even the magistrate almost gasped at the boldness of the reply. It did, in very truth, seem as though Jack was rushing on his fate. I realized, of course, the vital necessity he was under of concealing, for Bella's sake, the fact that there was a duplicate dagger in the case. So long as there was supposed to be only one weapon, no suspicion was likely to attach to the girl who had had the second paper-knife in her possession. He was valiantly shielding the woman he had once loved, but at what a cost to himself! I began to realize the magnitude of the task I had so lightly set Poirot. It would not be easy to secure the acquittal of Jacques Renault by anything short of the truth. Monsieur Rotet spoke again, with a peculiarly biting inflection. Madame Renault told us that this dagger was on her dressing-table on the night of the crime. But Madame Renaud is a mother. It will doubtless astonish you, Renaud, but I consider it highly likely that Madame Renaud was mistaken, and that, by inadvertence perhaps, you had taken it with you to Paris. Doubtless you will contradict me. I saw the lad's handcuffed hands clench themselves. The perspiration stood out in beads upon his brow, as with a supreme effort he interrupted Monsieur Rotet in a hoarse voice. I shall not contradict you. It is possible. It was a stupefying moment. Maitre Grosier rose to his feet, protesting. My client has undergone a considerable nervous strain. I should wish it put on record that I do not consider him answerable for what he says. The magistrate quelled him angrily. For a moment a doubt seemed to arise in his own mind. 
Jack Renault had almost overdone his part. He leaned forward and gazed at the prisoner searchingly. Do you fully understand, Renault, that on the answers you have given me, I shall have no alternative but to commit you for trial? Jack's pale face flushed. He looked steadily back. Monsieur Rotet, I swear that I did not kill my father. But the magistrate's brief moment of doubt was over. He laughed a short, unpleasant laugh. <laughs> Without doubt. Without doubt, they are always innocent, our prisoners. By your own mouth, you are condemned. You can offer no defense, no alibi, only a mere assertion that would not deceive a babe that you are not guilty. <laughs> you killed your father, Renaud. Cruel and cowardly murder for the sake of money which you believed would come to you at his death. Your mother was an accessory after the fact. Doubtless, in view of the fact that she acted as a mother, the courts will extend an indulgence to her that they will not accord to you, and rightly so. Your crime was a horrible one, to be held in abhorrence by gods and men. Monsieur Octet was enjoying himself, working up his period, steeped in the solemnity of the moment and his own role as representative of justice. You killed, and you must pay the consequences of your action. I speak to you not as a man, but as justice, eternal justice, which— Monsieur Rotet was interrupted, to his intense annoyance. The door was pushed open. Monsieur le juge, monsieur le juge, stammered the attendant. There is a lady who says— "'Who says—' "'Who says what?' cried the justly incensed magistrate. "'This is highly irregular. I forbid it. I absolutely forbid it.' But a slender figure pushed the stammering gendarme aside. Dressed all in black, with a long veil that hid her face, she advanced into the room. My heart gave a sickening throb. She had come then. All my efforts were in vain.' yet I could not but admire the courage that had led her to take this step so unfalteringly. She raised her veil, and I gasped, for though as like her as two peas, this girl was not Cinderella. On the other hand, now that I saw her without the fair wig she had worn on the stage, I recognized her as the girl of the photograph in Jack Renault's room. "'You are the juge d'instruction, Monsieur Rotet? she queried. "'Yes, but I forbid. My name is Bella Duvin. "'I wish to give myself up for the murder of Mr. Renault.'" Chapter 26 I Receive a Letter "'My friend, you will know all when you get this.' Nothing that I can say will move Bella. She has gone out to give herself up. I am tired out with struggling. You will know now that I deceived you, that where you gave me trust, I repaid you with lies. It will seem perhaps indefensible to you, but I should like, before I go out of your life forever, to show you just how it all came about. If I knew that you forgave me, it would make life easier for me. It wasn't for myself I did it. That's the one thing I can put forward to say for myself. I'll begin from the day I met you in the boat train from Paris. 
I was uneasy then about Bella. She was just desperate about Jack Rennell. She'd have lain down on the ground for him to walk on. And when he began to change, and to stop writing so often, she began getting in a state. She got it into her head that he was keen on another girl. And of course, as it turned out afterwards, she was quite right there. She had made up her mind to go to their villa at Merlonville and try and see Jack. She knew I was against it and tried to give me the slip. I found she was not on the train at Calais and determined I would not go on to England without her. I had an uneasy feeling that something awful was going to happen if I couldn't prevent it. I met the next train from Paris. She was on it and set upon going out then and there to Merlonville. I argued with her for all I was worth, but it wasn't any good. She was all strung up and set upon having her own way. Well, I washed my hands of it. I'd done all I could. It was getting late. I went to an hotel, and Bella started for Merlonville. I still couldn't shake off my feeling of what the books call impending disaster. The next day came, but no Bella. She'd made a date with me to meet at the hotel. But she didn't keep it. No sign of her all day. I got more and more anxious. Then came an evening paper with the news. It was awful. I couldn't be sure, of course, but I was terribly afraid. I figured it out that Bella had met Papa Renault and told him about her and Jack, and that he'd insulted her or something like that. We've both got terribly quick tempers. Then all the masked foreigner business came out. And I began to feel more at ease, but it still worried me that Bella hadn't kept her date with me. By the next morning, I was so rattled that I just got to go and see what I could. First thing, I ran up against you. You know all that. When I saw the dead man looking so like Jack and wearing Jack's fancy overcoat, I knew. And there was the identical paper knife, wicked little thing, that Jack had given Bella. Ten to one, it had her finger marks on it. I can't hope to explain to you the sort of helpless horror of that moment. I only saw one thing clearly: I must get hold of that dagger and get right away with it before they found out it was gone. I pretended to faint, and whilst you were away getting water, I took the thing and hid it away in my dress. I told you that I was staying at the Hotel du Fer. But of course, really, I made a beeline back to Calais, and then on to England by the first boat. When we were in mid-channel, I dropped that little devil of a dagger into the sea. Then I felt I could breathe again. Bella was at our digs in London. She looked like nothing on God's earth. I told her what I'd done, and that she was pretty safe for the time being. She stared at me, and then began laughing, laughing, laughing. It was horrible to hear her. I felt that the best thing to do was to keep busy. She'd go mad if she had time to brood on what she'd done. Luckily, we got an engagement at once, and then I saw you and your friend watching us that night. I was frantic. You must suspect, or you wouldn't have tracked us down. I had to know the worst, so I followed you. I was desperate, and then before I'd had time to say anything, I tumbled to it. That it was me you suspected, not Bella, or at least that you thought I was Bella, since I'd stolen the dagger. I wish, honey, that you could see back into my mind at that moment. 
you'd forgive me, perhaps. I was so frightened and muddled and desperate. All I could get clearly was that you would try and save me. I didn't know whether you'd be willing to save her. I thought very likely not. It wasn't the same thing. And I couldn't risk it. Bella's my twin. I've got to do the best for her. So I went on lying. I felt mean. I feel mean still. That's all. Enough, too, you'll say, I expect. I ought to have trusted you. If I had... As soon as the news was in the paper that Jack Renault had been arrested, it was all up. Bella wouldn't even wait to see how things went. I'm very tired. I can't write any more. She had begun to sign herself Cinderella, but had crossed that out and written instead, Dulcie Duveen. It was an ill-written, blurred epistle, but I have kept it to this day. Poirot was with me when I read it. The sheets fell from my hand, and I looked across at him. Did you know all the time that it was th the other? Yes, my friend. Why did you not tell me? To begin with, I could hardly believe it conceivable that you could make such a mistake. You had seen the photograph. The sisters are very alike, but by no means incapable of distinguishment. But the fair hair, a wig, worn for the sake of the piquant contrast of the stage. Is it conceivable that with twins one should be fair and one dark? Why didn't you tell me that night at the hotel in Coventry? You were rather high-handed in your methods, mon ami, said Poirot dryly. You did not give me a chance. But afterwards? Ah, afterwards? Well, to begin with, I was hurt at your want of faith in me. And then I wanted to see whether your feelings would stand the test of time. In fact, whether it was love or a flash in the pan with you. I should not have left you long in your error. I nodded. His tone was too affectionate for me to bear resentment. I looked down on the sheets of the letter. Suddenly I picked them up from the floor and pushed them across to him. Read that, I said. I'd like you to. He read it through in silence. Then he looked up at me. What is it that worries you, Hastings? This was quite a new mood in Poirot. His mocking manner seemed laid quite aside. I was able to say what I wanted without too much difficulty. She doesn't say... She doesn't say... Well, not whether she cares for me or not. Poirot turned back the pages. I think you are mistaken, Hastings. Where? I cried, leaning forward eagerly. Poirot smiled. She tells you that in every line of the letter, mon ami. Where am I to find her? There's no address on the letter. There's a French stamp, that's all. Excite yourself not. Leave it to Papa Poirot. I can find her for you as soon as I have five little minutes. Chapter 27 Jack Renault's Story "'Congratulations, Monsieur Jacques,' said Poirot, wringing the lad warmly by the hand. Young Renault had come to us as soon as he was liberated, before starting for Merlonville to rejoin Marta and his mother. Stoner accompanied him. His heartiness was in strong contrast to the lad's wan looks. It was plain that the boy was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. 
Although delivered from the immediate peril that was hanging over him, the circumstances of his release were too painful to let him feel full relief. He smiled mournfully at Poirot, and said in a low voice, I went through it to protect her, and now it's all no use. You could hardly expect the girl to accept the price of your life, remarked Stoner dryly. She was bound to come forward when she saw you heading straight for the guillotine. Ah, ma foi, and you were heading for it too, added Poirot with a slight twinkle. You would have had Maitre Grosier's death from rage on your conscience if you had gone on. He was a well-meaning ass, I suppose, said Jack. But he worried me horribly. You see, I couldn't very well take him into my confidence. But my God, what's going to happen about Bella? If I were you, said Poirot, frankly, I should not distress myself unduly. The French courts are very lenient to youth and beauty, and the crime passionnel. A clever lawyer will make out a great case of extenuating circumstances. It will not be pleasant for you. I don't care about that. You see, Monsieur Poirot, in a way I do feel guilty of my father's murder. But for me, and my entanglement with this girl, he would be alive and well today. And then my cursed carelessness in taking away the wrong overcoat. I can't help feeling responsible for his death. It will haunt me forever. No, no, I said soothingly. Of course it's horrible to me to think that Bella killed my father, resumed Jack. But I'd treated her shamefully. After I met Martha, and realized I'd made a mistake, I ought to have written and told her so honestly. But I was so terrified of a row, and of its coming to Martha's ears, and her thinking there was more in it than there ever had been, that, well, I was a coward, and went on hoping the thing would die down of itself. I just drifted, in fact, not realizing that I was driving the poor kid desperate. If she'd really knifed me as she meant to, I should have got no more than my deserts. And the way she's come forward now is downright plucky. I'd have stood the racket, you know, up to the end. He was silent for a moment or two, and then burst out on another tack. What gets me is why the governor should be wandering about in underclothes and my overcoat at that time of night. I suppose he'd just given the foreign johnnies the slip, and my mother must have made a mistake about its being two o'clock when they came. Or... Or it wasn't all a frame-up, was it? I mean, my mother didn't think, couldn't think, that that it was me. Poirot reassured him quickly. No, no, Monsieur Jacques, have no fears on that score. As for the rest, I will explain it to you one of these days. It is rather curious. But will you recount to us exactly what did occur on that terrible evening? There's very little to tell. I came from Cherbourg, as I told you, in order to see Marta before going to the other end of the world. The train was late, and I decided to take the shortcut across the golf links. I could easily get into the grounds of the Villa Marguerite from there. I had nearly reached the place when... He paused and swallowed. Yes? I heard a terrible cry. It wasn't loud, a sort of choke and gasp, but it frightened me. For a moment I stood rooted to the spot. Then I came round the corner of a bush. There was moonlight. I saw the grave, and a figure 
lying face downwards, with a dagger sticking in the back. And then, and then I looked up and saw her. She was looking at me as though she saw a ghost. It's what she must have thought me at first. All expression seemed frozen out of her face by horror. And then she gave a cry and turned and ran. He stopped, trying to master his emotion. And afterwards? asked Poirot gently. I really don't know. I stayed there for a time, dazed. And then I realized I'd better get away as fast as I could. It didn't occur to me that they would suspect me, but I was afraid of being called upon to give evidence against her. I walked to saint Beauvais, as I told you, and I got a car from there back to Cherbourg. A knock came at the door, and a page entered with a telegram which he delivered to Stoner. He tore it open. Then he got up from his seat. Mrs. Renault has regained consciousness, he said. Ah! Poirot sprang to his feet. Let us all go to Melonville at once. A hurried departure was made forthwith. Stoner, at Jack's insistence, agreed to stay behind and do all that could be done for Bella Duvine. Poirot, Jack Renault and I set off in the Renault car. The run took just over forty minutes. As we approached the doorway of the Villa Marguerite, Jack Renault shot a questioning glance at Poirot. How would it be if you went on first, to break the news to my mother that I am free? While you break it in person to Mademoiselle Martha, eh? Finished Poirot with a twinkle. But yes, by all means. I was about to propose such an arrangement myself. Jack Renault did not wait for more. Stopping the car, he swung himself out and ran up the path to the front door. We went on in the car to the Villa Genevieve. Poirot, I said, do you remember how we arrived here that first day, and were met by the news of Monsieur Renault's murder? Ah, yes, truly. Not so long ago, either. But what a lot of things have happened since then. Especially for you, mon ami. Poirot, what have you done about finding Bel... I mean, Dulcie? Calm yourself, Hastings. I arrange everything. You're being a precious long time about it, I grumbled. Poirot changed the subject. Then the beginning, now the end, he moralized as we rang the bell. And considered as a case, the end is profoundly unsatisfactory. Yes, indeed, I sighed. You are regarding it from a sentimental standpoint, Hastings. That was not my meaning. We will hope that Mademoiselle Bella will be dealt with leniently, and after all, Jacques Renault cannot marry both the girls. I spoke from a professional standpoint. This is not a crime well-ordered and regular, such as a detective delights in. The mise-en-scene designed by Georges Cournot, that indeed is perfect, but the denouement... Ah, no. A man killed by accident in a girl's fit of anger? Ah, indeed. What order or method is there in that? And in the midst of a fit of laughter on my part at Poirot's peculiarities, the door was opened by Francoise. Poirot explained that he must see Mrs. Renault at once, and the old woman conducted him upstairs. I remained in the salon. It was some time before Poirot reappeared. He was looking unusually grave. Vous voilà, Hastings, 
Sacre tonnerre, but there are scores ahead. What do you mean? I cried. I would hardly have credited it, said Poirot thoughtfully. But women are very unexpected. Here are Jack and Martha Dubray, I exclaimed, looking out of the window. Poirot bounded out of the room and met the young couple on the steps outside. Do not enter. It is better not. Your mother is very upset. I know, I know, said Jack Renault. I must go up to her at once. But no, I tell you, it is better not. But Martha and I, in any case, do not take Mademoiselle with you. Mount if you must, but you would be wise to be guided by me. A voice on the stairs behind us made us start. I thank you for your good offices, Monsieur Poirot, but I will make my own wishes clear. We stared in astonishment. Descending the stairs, leaning upon Leonie's arm, was Mrs. Renault, her head still bandaged. The French girl was weeping and imploring her mistress to return to bed. Madame will kill herself. It is contrary to all the doctor's orders. But Mrs. Renault came on. Mother, cried Jack, starting forward. But with a gesture, she drove him back. I am no mother of yours. You are no son of mine. From this day and hour, I renounce you. Mother, cried the lad, stupefied. For a moment she seemed to waver, to falter, before the anguish in his voice. Poirot made a mediating gesture, but instantly she regained command of herself. Your father's blood is on your head. You are morally guilty of his death. You thwarted and defied him over this girl. And by your heartless treatment of another girl, you brought about his death. Go out from my house. Tomorrow I intend to take such steps as to make it certain that you shall never touch a penny of his money. Make your way in the world as best you can with the help of the girl, who is the daughter of your father's bitterest enemy. And slowly, painfully, she retraced her way upstairs. We were all dumbfounded, totally unprepared for such a demonstration. Jack Renault, worn out with all he had already gone through, swayed and nearly fell. Poirot and I went quickly to his assistance. He is overdone, murmured Poirot to Marta. Where can we take him? But home, to la Villa Marguerite. We will nurse him, my mother and I, my poor Jack. We got the lad to the villa, where he dropped limply onto a chair in a semi-dazed condition. Poirot felt his head and hands. He has fever. The long strain begins to tell, and now this shock on top of it. Get him to bed, and Hastings and I will summon a doctor. A doctor was soon procured. After examining the patient, he gave it as his opinion that it was simply a case of nerve strain. With perfect rest and quiet, the lad might be almost restored by the next day. But if excited, there was a chance of brain fever. It would be advisable for someone to sit up all night with him. Finally, having done all we could, we left him in the charge of Marta and her mother, and set out for the town. It was past our usual hour of dining, and we were both famished. The first restaurant we came to assuaged the pains of hunger, with an excellent omelette and an equally excellent entrecote to follow. And now for quarters for the night, said Poirot, 
when at length Café Noir had completed the meal. "'Shall we try our old friend, the Hôtel de Bain?' We traced our steps there without more ado. Yes, messieurs could be accommodated with two rooms overlooking the sea. Then Poirot asked a question which surprised me. Has an English lady, Miss Robinson, arrived? Yes, monsieur. She is in the little salon. Ah. Poirot, I cried, keeping pace with him as he walked along the corridor. Who on earth is Miss Robinson? Poirot beamed kindly on me. It is that I have arranged your marriage, Hastings. But I say, da, said Poirot, giving me a friendly push over the threshold of the door. Do you think I wish to trumpet aloud in Merlonville the name of Duvine? It was indeed Cinderella who rose to greet us. I took her hands in both of mine. My eyes said the rest. Poirot cleared his throat. Mes enfants, he said. For the moment we have no time for sentiment. There is work ahead of us. Mademoiselle, were you able to do what I asked you? In response, Cinderella took from her bag an object wrapped up in paper and handed it silently to Poirot. The latter unwrapped it. I gave a start, for it was the aeroplane dagger which I understood she had cast into the sea. Strange how reluctant women always are to destroy the most compromising of objects and documents. Très bien, mon enfant said Poirot. I am pleased with you. Now go and rest yourself. Hastings here and I have work to do. You shall see him tomorrow. Where are you going? asked the girl, her eyes widening. You shall hear all about it tomorrow. Because wherever you're going, I'm coming too. But, mademoiselle, I'm coming too, I tell you. Poirot realized that it was futile to argue further. He gave in. Come then, mademoiselle, but it will not be amusing. In all probability, nothing will happen. The girl made no reply. Twenty minutes later, we set forth. It was quite dark now, a close, oppressive evening. Poirot led the way out of the town, in the direction of the Villa Genevieve. But when he reached the Villa Marguerite, he paused. I should like to assure myself that all goes well with Jacques Renaud. Come with me, Hastings. Mademoiselle will perhaps remain outside. Madame Dubray might say something which would wound her. We unlatched the gate and walked up the path. As we went round to the side of the house, I drew Poirot's attention to a window on the first floor. Thrown sharply on the blind was the profile of Marta Dubray. Ah, said Poirot, I figure to myself that that is the room where we shall find Jacques Renaud. Madame de Bray opened the door to us. She explained that Jack was much the same, but perhaps we might like to see for ourselves. She led us upstairs and into the bedroom. Marta de Bray was embroidering by a table with a lamp on it. She put her finger to her lips as we entered. Jack Renault was sleeping an uneasy, fitful sleep, his head turning from side to side, and his face still unduly flushed. Is the doctor coming again? "'asked Poirot in a whisper. "'Not unless we send. "'He is sleeping. "'That is a great thing. "'Maman made him a tisane.' "'She sat down again with her embroidery "'as we left the room. "'Madame de Bray accompanied us down the stairs. "'Since I had learned of her past history, "'I viewed this woman with increased interest. 
She stood there with her eyes cast down, the same very faint enigmatical smile that I remembered on her lips. And suddenly I felt afraid of her, as one might feel afraid of a beautiful poisonous snake. I hope we have not deranged you, madame, said Poirot politely, as she opened the door for us to pass out. Not at all, monsieur. By the way, said Poirot, as though struck by an afterthought, Monsieur Stoner has not been in Melonville today, has he? I could not at all fathom the point of this question, which I well knew to be meaningless as far as Poirot was concerned. Madame de Bray replied quite composedly, Not that I know of. He has not had an interview with Mrs. Renault? How should I know that, monsieur? True, said Poirot. I thought you might have seen him coming or going, that is all. Good night, madame. Why, I began, no wise, Hastings. There will be time for that later. We rejoined Cinderella and made our way rapidly in the direction of the Villa Genevieve. Poirot looked over his shoulder once at the lighted window and the profile of Marta as she bent over her work. He is being guarded at all events, he muttered. Arrived at the Villa Genevieve, Poirot took up his stand behind some bushes to the left of the drive, where, whilst enjoying a good view ourselves, we were completely hidden from sight. The villa itself was in total darkness. Everybody was without doubt in bed and asleep. We were almost immediately under the window of Mrs. Renault's bedroom, which window, I noticed, was open. It seemed to me that it was upon this spot that Poirot's eyes were fixed. "'What are we going to do?' I whispered. "'Watch. "'But I do not expect anything to happen for at least an hour, "'probably two hours, but the—' "'But his words were interrupted by a long, thin-drawn cry. "'Help!' "'A light flashed up in the second-floor room on the right-hand side of the house. "'The cry came from there. "'And even as we watched, there came a shadow on the blind "'as of two people struggling. "'Miltonaire!' cried Poirot. She must have changed her room. Dashing forward, he battered wildly on the front door. Then, rushing to the tree in a flower-bed, he swarmed up with the agility of a cat. I followed him, as with a bound he sprang in through the open window. Looking over my shoulder, I saw Dulcie reaching the branch behind me. "'Take care,' I exclaimed. "'Take care of your grandmother,' retorted the girl. "'This is child's play to me.' Poirot had rushed through the empty room, and was pounding on the door leading into the corridor. "'Locked and bolted on the outside,' he growled, "'and it will take time to burst it open.' The cries for help were getting noticeably fainter. I saw despair in Poirot's eyes. He and I together put our shoulders to the door. Cinderella's voice, calm and dispassionate, came from the window. "'You'll be too late. I guess I'm the only one who can do anything.' Before I could move a hand to stop her— she appeared to leap upward into space. I rushed and looked out. To my horror, I saw her hanging by her hands from the roof, propelling herself along by jerks in the direction of the lighted window. Good heavens, she'll be killed, I cried. You forget? She's a professional acrobat, Hastings. It was the providence of the good God that made her insist on coming with us tonight. I only pray that she may be in time. Ah! A cry of absolute terror floated out onto the night as the girl disappeared through the right-hand window. 
Then, in Cinderella's clear tones, came the words, "No, you don't. I've got you, and my wrists are just like steel." At the same moment, the door of our prison was opened cautiously by Françoise. Poirot brushed her aside unceremoniously and rushed down the passage to where the other maids were grouped round the further door. "It's locked on the inside, Monsieur." There was a sound of a heavy fall within. After a moment or two, the key turned and the door swung slowly open. Cinderella, very pale, beckoned us in. "Is she safe?" demanded Poirot. "Yes, I was just in time. She was exhausted." Mrs. Renault was half sitting, half lying on the bed. She was gasping for breath. "Nearly strangled me," she murmured painfully. The girl picked up something from the floor. And handed it to Poirot. It was a rolled-up ladder of silk rope, very fine but quite strong. The getaway," said Poirot, "by the window, whilst we were battering at the door. Where is the other?" The girl stood aside a little and pointed. On the ground lay a figure wrapped in some dark material, a fold of which hid the face. Dead. She nodded. I think so. Head must have struck the marble fender. But who is it? I cried. The murderer of Monsieur Renault Hastings, and the would-be murderer of Madame Renault. Puzzled and uncomprehending, I knelt down, and lifting the fold of cloth, looked into the dead, beautiful face of Marta Debray. Chapter Twenty Eight, Journeys End. I have confused memories of the further events of that night. Poirot seemed deaf to my repeated questions. He was engaged in overwhelming Françoise with reproaches for not having told him of Mrs. Renault's change of sleeping quarters. I caught him by the shoulder, determined to attract his attention and make myself heard. But you must have known, I expostulated. You were taken up to see her this afternoon. Poirot deigned to attend to me for a brief moment. She had been wheeled on a sofa into the middle room, her boudoir. He explained. But Monsieur, cried Françoise, Madame changed her room almost immediately after the crime. The associations—they were too distressing. Then why was I not told? Vociferated Poirot, striking the table and working himself up into a first-class passion. I demand you, why was I not told? You are an old woman, completely imbecile, and Leonie and Denise are no better. All of you are triple idiots. Your stupidity has nearly caused the death of your mistress. But for this courageous child, he broke off and darting across the room to where the girl was bending over. Ministering to Mrs. Renault, he embraced her with gallic fervor, slightly to my annoyance. I was aroused from my condition of mental fog by a sharp command from Poirot to fetch the doctor immediately on Mrs. Renault's behalf. After that, I might summon the police. And he added, to complete my dudgeon, "It will hardly be worth your while to return here. I shall be too busy to attend to you, and of Mademoiselle here, I make a garde malade." I retired with what dignity I could command. Having done my errands, I returned to the hotel. 
I understood next to nothing of what had occurred. The events of the night seemed fantastic and impossible. Nobody would answer my questions. Nobody had seemed to hear them. Angrily, I flung myself into bed and slept the sleep of the bewildered and utterly exhausted. I awoke to find the sun pouring in through the open windows, and Poirot, neat and smiling, sitting beside the bed. Or far you wake! But it is that you are a famous sleeper, he stings. Do you know that it is nearly eleven o'clock? I groaned and put a hand to my head. I must have been dreaming, I said. Do you know, I actually dreamt that we found Marta Dubray's body in Mrs. Renault's room, and that you declared her to have murdered Mr. Renault? You were not dreaming. All that is quite true. But Bella Duvine killed Mr. Renault. Oh, no, Hastings, she did not. She said she did, yes, but that was to save the man she loved from the guillotine. What? Remember Jack Renault's story. They both arrived on the scene at the same instant, and each took the other to be the perpetrator of the crime. The girl stares at him in horror, and then with a cry rushes away. But when she hears that the crime has been brought home to him, she cannot bear it, and comes forward to accuse herself and save him from certain death. Poirot leaned back in his chair and brought the tips of his fingers together in familiar style. The case was not quite satisfactory to me, he observed judiciously. All along I was strongly under the impression that we were dealing with a cold-blooded and premeditated crime committed by someone who had been contented very cleverly with using Monsieur Renault's own plans for throwing the police off the track. The great criminal, as you may remember my remarking to you once, is always supremely simple. I nodded. Now, to support this theory, the criminal must have been fully cognizant of Monsieur Renault's plans. That leads us to Madame Renault. But facts fail to support any theory of her guilt. Is there anyone else who might have known of them? Yes. From Marta Dubray's own lips, we have the admission that she overheard Monsieur Renault's quarrel with the tramp. If she could overhear that, there is no reason why she could not have heard everything else, especially if Monsieur and Madame Renault were imprudent enough to discuss their plan sitting on the bench. Remember how easily you overheard Marta's conversation with Jacques Renault from that spot. But what possible motive could Marta have for murdering Mr. Renault? I argued. What motive? Money! Monsieur Renault was a millionaire several times over, and at his death, or so she and Jacques believed, half that vast fortune would pass to his son. Let us reconstruct the scene from the standpoint of Marta Dubray. Marta Dubray overhears what passes between Renault and his wife. So far, he has been a nice little source of income to the Dubray mother and daughter. But now, he proposes to escape from their toils. At first, possibly, her idea is to prevent that escape. But a bolder idea takes its place, and one that fails to horrify the daughter of Jeanne Baroldi. At present, Monsieur Renault stands inexorably in the way of her marriage with Jack. If the latter defies his father, 
he will be a pauper, which is not at all to the mind of Mademoiselle Martha. In fact, I doubt if she has ever cared a straw for Jacques Renaud. She can simulate emotion, but in reality, she is of the same cold, calculating type as her mother. I doubt, too, whether she was really very sure of her hold over the boy's affections. She had dazzled and captivated him, but separated from her. As his father could so easily manage to separate him, she might lose him. But, with Monsieur Renaud dead, and Jacques the heir to half his millions, the marriage can take place at once, and at a stroke she will attain wealth, not the beggarly thousands that have been extracted from him so far, and her clever brain takes in the simplicity of the thing. It is all so easy. Monsieur Renaud is planning all the circumstances of his death. She has only to step in at the right moment and turn the farce into a grim reality. And here comes in the second point, which led me infallibly to Martha Dubray. The dagger. Jacques Renaud had three souvenirs made. One he gave to his mother, one to Bella Duvine. Was it not highly probable that he had given a third one to Martha Dubray? So then, to sum up, there were four points of note against Martha Dubray. One. Martha Dubray could have overheard Monsieur Renault's plans. Two. Martha Dubray had a direct interest in causing Monsieur Renault's death. Three. Martha Dubray was the daughter of the notorious Madame Beroldi, who, in my opinion, was morally and virtually the murderess of her husband, although it may have been Georges Connaud's hand which struck the actual blow. 4. Martha Dubray was the only person, besides Jacques Renaud, likely to have the third dagger in her possession. Poirot paused and cleared his throat. Of course... When I learned of the existence of the other girl, Bella Duvine, I realized that it was quite possible that she might have killed Monsieur Renaud. The solution did not command itself to me because, as I pointed out to you, Hastings, an expert such as I am, likes to meet a foeman worthy of his steel. Still, one must take crimes as one finds them, not as one would like them to be. It did not seem very likely that Bella Duvine would be wandering about carrying a souvenir paper-knife in her hand, but of course she might have had some idea all the time of revenging herself on Jacques Renaud. When she actually came forward and confessed to the murder, it seemed that all was over. And yet I was not satisfied, mon ami. I was not satisfied. I went over the case again minutely and I came to the same conclusion as before. If it was not Bella Duvine, the only other person who could have committed the crime was Martha Dubray. But I had not one single proof against her. And then you showed me that letter from Mademoiselle Dulcy, and I saw a chance of settling the matter once for all. The original dagger was stolen by Dulcy Duvine and thrown into the sea since, as she thought, it belonged to her sister. But if by any chance it was not her sister's, but the one given by Jack to Martha Dubray, why then, Bella Duvine's dagger would be still intact. 
I said no word to you, Hastings. It was no time for romance. But I sought out Mademoiselle Dulcy, told her as much as I deemed needful, and set her to search amongst the effects of her sister. Imagine my elation when she sought me out according to my instructions as Miss Robinson with the precious souvenir in her possession. In the meantime, I had taken steps to force Mademoiselle Martha into the open. By my orders, Mrs. Renault repulsed her son and declared her intention of making a will on the morrow which should cut him off from ever enjoying even a portion of his father's fortune. It was a desperate step, but a necessary one, and Madame Renault was fully prepared to take the risk, though, unfortunately, she also never thought of mentioning her change of room. I suppose she took it for granted that I knew. All happened as I thought. Martha de Bray made a last bold bid for the Renault millions, and failed. What absolutely bewilders me, I said, is how she ever got into the house without our seeing her. It seems an absolute miracle. We left her behind at the Villa Marguerite, we go straight to the Villa Genevieve, and yet she is there before us. Ah, but we did not leave her behind. She was out of the Villa Marguerite by the back way, whilst we were talking to her mother in the hall. That is where, as the Americans say, she put it over on her cool Poirot. But the shadow on the blind, we saw it from the road. Eh bien, when we looked up, Madame de Bray had just had time to run upstairs and take her place. Madame de Bray? Yes. One is old and one is young, one dark and one fair, but for the purpose of a silhouette on a blind, their profiles are singularly alike. Even I did not suspect, triple imbecile that I was, I thought I had plenty of time before me, that she would not try to gain admission to the villa until much later. She had brains, that beautiful Mademoiselle Martha. And her object was to murder Mrs. Renell? Yes. The whole fortune would then pass to her son. But it would have been suicide, mon ami. On the floor by Martha de Bray's body, I found a pad and a little bottle of chloroform and a hypodermic syringe containing a fatal dose of morphine. You understand? The chloroform first, then, when the victim is unconscious, the prick of the needle. By the morning, the smell of the chloroform has quite disappeared, and the syringe lies where it has fallen from Madame Renault's hand. What would he say, the excellent Monsieur Rotet? Poor woman, what did I tell you? The shock of joy. It was too much on top of the rest. Did I not say that I should not be surprised if her brain became unhinged? Altogether a most tragic case, the Renault case. However, Hastings, things did not go quite as Mademoiselle Martha had planned. To begin with, Madame Renault was awake and waiting for her. There is a struggle, but Madame Renault is terribly weak still. There is a last chance for Martha Dubray. The idea of suicide is at an end, but if she can silence Madame Renault with her strong hands, make a getaway with a little silk ladder, whilst we are still battering on the inside of the further door, and be back at the Villa Marguerite before we return there, it will be hard to prove anything against her. But she was checkmated. 
not by Hercule Poirot, but by la petite acrobat with her wrists of steel. I mused over the whole story. When did you first begin to suspect Marta Dubray Poirot? When she told us she had overheard the quarrel in the garden? Poirot smiled. My friend, do you remember when we drove into Malonville that first day? and the beautiful girl we saw standing at the gate? You asked me if I had not noticed a young goddess, and I replied to you that I had seen only a girl with anxious eyes. That is how I have thought of Martha Dubray from the beginning. The girl with the anxious eyes. Why was she anxious? Not on Jacques Renaud's behalf, for she did not know then that he had been in Merlonville the previous evening. By the way, I exclaimed, how is Jacques Renel? Much better. He is still at the Villa Marguerite, but Madame Dubray has disappeared. The police are looking for her. Was she in with her daughter, do you think? We shall never know. Madame is a lady who can keep her secrets, and I doubt very much if the police will ever find her. Has Jacques Renel been told? Not yet. It will be a terrible shock to him, naturally. And yet, do you know, Hastings, I doubt if his heart was ever seriously engaged. So far we have looked upon Bella Duvin as a siren, and Martha Dubray as the girl he really loved. But I think that if we reverse the terms, we should come nearer to the truth. Martha Dubray was very beautiful. She set herself to fascinate Jack, and she succeeded— but remember his curious reluctance to break with the other girl, and see how he was willing to go to the guillotine rather than implicate her. I have a little idea that when he learns the truth he will be horrified, revolted, and his false love will wither away. What about Giraud? He has a crease of the nerves, that one. He has been obliged to return to Paris. We both smiled. Poirot proved a fairly true prophet. When at length the doctor pronounced Jacques Renault strong enough to hear the truth, it was Poirot who broke it to him. The shock was indeed terrific. Yet Jacques rallied better than I could have supposed possible. His mother's devotion helped him to live through those difficult days. The mother and son were inseparable now. There was a further revelation to come. Poirot had acquainted Mrs. Renault with the fact that he knew her secret, and had represented to her that Jack should not be left in ignorance of his father's past. To hide the truth, never does it avail, madame. Be brave, and tell him everything. With a heavy heart, Mrs. Renault consented, and her son learned that the father he had loved had been in actual fact a fugitive from justice. A halting question was promptly answered by Poirot. Reassure yourself, Monsieur Jacques, the world knows nothing. As far as I can see, there is no obligation for me to take the police into my confidence. Throughout the case, I have acted not for them, but for your father. Justice overtook him at last, but no one need ever know that he and Georges Cournot were one and the same. There were, of course, various points in the case that remained puzzling to the police, but Poirot explained things in so plausible a fashion that all query about them was gradually stilled. 
Shortly after we got back to London, I noticed a magnificent model of a foxhound adorning Poirot's mantelpiece. In answer to my inquiring glance, Poirot nodded. Mais oui, I got my five hundred francs. Is he not a splendid fellow? I call him Giraud. A few days later, Jack Renault came to see us with a resolute expression on his face. Monsieur Poirot, I've come to say goodbye. I'm sailing for South America almost immediately. My father had large interests over the continent, and I mean to start a new life out there. You go alone, Monsieur Jacques? My mother comes with me, and I shall keep Stoner on as my secretary. He likes out of the way parts of the world. No one else goes with you? Jack flushed. You mean a girl who loves you very dearly? Who has been willing to lay down her life for you. How could I ask her? muttered the boy. After all that has happened, could I go to her and. Oh, what sort of a lame story could I tell? Les femmes, they have a wonderful genius for manufacturing crutches for stories like that. Yes, but I've been such a damned fool. So have all of us at one time or another. Observed Poirot philosophically, but Jack's face had hardened. There's something else. I'm my father's son. Would anyone marry me, knowing that? You are your father's son, you say. Hastings here will tell you what I believe in heredity. Well then, wait. I know a woman, a woman of courage and endurance, capable of great love, of supreme self-sacrifice. The boy looked up. His eyes softened. My mother, yes, you are your mother's son as well as your father's. Go then to Mademoiselle Bella. Tell her everything. Keep nothing back, and see what she will say. Jack looked irresolute. Go to her as a boy, no longer but a man, a man bowed by the fate of the past. And the fate of today, but looking forward to a new and wonderful life, ask her to share it with you. You may not realize it, but your love for each other has been tested in the fire, and not found wanting. You have both been willing to lay down your lives for each other. And what of Captain Arthur Hastings, humble chronicler of these pages? There is some talk of his joining the Renaults on a ranch across the seas, but for the end of this story, I prefer to go back to a morning in the garden of the Villa Genevieve. I can't call you Bella, I said, since it isn't your name, and Dulcie seems so unfamiliar. So it's got to be Cinderella. Cinderella married the prince, you remember. I'm not a prince, but she interrupted me. Cinderella warned him, I'm sure. You see, she couldn't promise to turn into a princess. She was only a little scullion, after all. It's the prince's turn to interrupt, I interpolated. Do you know what he said? No. Hell, said the prince, and kissed her. And I suited the action to the word. This is B.J. Harrison. 
I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of The Murder on the Links, Part 7 of 7 by Agatha Christie. If you've enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at classictalesaudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <laughs>